Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. This is a special edition in collaboration with the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. Today, my conversation with Catherine Lofton, a professor of religious studies and history at Yale University. Her book, Consuming Religion. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. This is a special edition in collaboration with the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. Today, my conversation with Catherine Lofton, a professor of religious studies and history at Yale University. Her book, Consuming Religion, published by the University of Chicago Press, is a topic of this show. Lofton offers a collection of 11 essays of cultural critique that reflect on the connections between religion, consumer culture, celebrity, and the corporation. Her definition of religion is capacious and founded on Durkheim's understanding of it as a form of social organization that determines who we are. In contemporary culture, religion is an attempt to mass-produce relations of value and generate both control and freedom. Applying this definition to popular culture, she examines binge-watching, the cubicle of the action office of Herman Miller, purity balls, Hotel Preston's innovation in the spiritual menu offerings, and the fascination with the Kardashians. In an ethnographic study, she demonstrates how the idea of corporate culture becomes a form of religion evident in the Wall Street firm of Goldman Sachs. Lawson challenges us to see religion everywhere in our construction of meaning and value. Here is my conversation with Catherine Lofton. Now let me introduce you to the author, Catherine Lofton. Catherine, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Lillian. And thank you for agreeing for, for this conversation about your book. There's so much stuff to talk about. We can't cover it all, but we're going to start first with people who don't know you. Uh, a little about yourself, your background, uh, how, and how you came to write Consuming Religion. I came to write it through two strange pathways. One was um, kind of a dissatisfaction with the way I'd answered questions in my first book on Oprah Winfrey. And then the other was finding myself at an institution like Yale and encountering its culture and trying to figure it out. And so together, those two things blended to lead me to write a series of essays about the nature of corporate culture and also trying to figure out how corporate culture relates to our broader consumer culture, which is what I've been exploring in the Oprah book. But I I never really figured out in the Oprah book, why is it that we do agree to be in certain collectives over others? And so I turned to look at different corporate cultures in part to solve that problem. But that was really interesting to me because I come from business, a business yes. background, so I'm very familiar with what you're talking about. <laughs> and so it rang a lot of bells for me. But it's not about me. So uh, the first thing I have to ask you well, is... Well, no, it is. That's partly the hope, Lillian, <laughs> is that people who are in business culture recognize themselves in this. I, if I wrote a book that's only legible to nerds in American religious history, I'll be disappointed. I want people in business to think about what's the what's the relationship I have to whatever strange firm I find myself attached to. Yeah, it's really interesting. So um, I spent about uh, three weeks, about a couple of years ago, with a bunch of a uh, group of religion scholars in a summer seminar, and uh, that's not really my background. I'm a historian, but not particularly a religion scholar. And the whole three weeks I'm listening for what is religion. And Mm. at the end of the three weeks, you know, there was no answer. But there were multiple (laughs) answers. Everybody had a different, you know, everything we read was a different definition. So what is religion? Mm. Well, first of all, Lily, I know you think a lot about liberation theology, so I think you have something to say about the history of religion and, and how it affects the ways that people uh, both reassert their relationship to society and resist society. And so uh, I think the chase of a 
single definition of religion has led to some beautiful and critical work that I've benefited enormously from. But uh, I admit that, that in this work, what I try to invite is for people to reflect on how easily and often people outside the academy use that word. They use it as a form of critique, but they also use it as a word that helps them think about forms of togetherness. So what I default to in the book is thinking a lot about religion as a social category. And here I, I constantly turn back to a complicated figure named Emil Durkheim and the way he theorizes uh, religion as a form of socialization, the form of socialization. But that, that theoretical realm is, it's, frankly, it's interesting to me in, in, my, in my academic climbs, but I really want to get people to think about what's the thing I commit to, to identify with, the social group I'm willing to admit I am a part of, uh, and what does that say about the set of values that I have? And so sometimes people will say, oh, it's just coincidental. I have this job. I don't really have a strong tie to my workplace, but here's this club I'm a part of, or here's this fantasy football team I can't stop playing on. And, and I'm interested in those social commitments that, uh, that we are willing to confess to having and that we think in part define our values. I think we tend to think, people tend to think that religion is something, a thing. But I think the way you talk about it is religion as a process, as a process of finding meaning and relationships, coherence. So that's how I read it. it would you say that's accurate instead of being a thing, that it's actually a process that we engage in? I like that, Lillian. I think process um, suggests that the person could engage with it individually and, and, and participate in it willingly. There's no question that I also have at times in the book a, a more cynical and anxious eye, that it's also a thing that we're being organized into, the ways that we are uh, being compelled to be a part of systems that perhaps, uh, as my students will often say, like, I can't help it. This is just the way the world is. And then describe a series of behaviors they feel they must commit to ritually and with piety in order to show that they are game for a certain capitalist location. So I'm interested in that word processes, absolutely, but also organizes, how we are organized into things. Well, the title of the book is Consuming Religion which is kind of a double meaning the way I read it, which indicates two directions. We, con- we are consumers of religion, and we're also consumed by religion. So consuming mm-hmm. religion has that double meaning. Um, mm-hmm. So can you comment about that? Yeah, I really wanted to play around with that just because, for me, it, it describes uh, so much of the literature on consumer culture, if you just read all the scholarly stuff, thinking about the history of consumption, whether it includes really high theory, people like the Frankfurt School or some of the amazing feminist scholarship on sentimental culture in the 19th century, all of that work reflects a basic ambiguity. We consume to survive. What we consume often hurts us. And I I wanted to try to sit on the edge of that and ask the question of a variety of objects. Uh, What is it to be inside a cubicle? What is it to uh, listen to a Britney Spears song and and download the whole album and and be a fan of Britney Spears? What is it to go to a particular workplace and say, I really, this is the place that defines a lot of my life and my culture. So I wanted to think about those you know, those are three disparate items, a kind of commodity shape you occupy, a celebrity that you listen to and consume voluntarily, and a workplace you've ended up at, and think about the simultaneity of, I need this, is it good for me? I need this, is it good for me? Okay. Let me ask you about religion uh, specifically. Is it is it the same as ideology, which many people have made that argument, or worldview, or rather is it a process of meaning, value formation, which I alluded to before, that can lead to ideology or worldview? What's it? What has, what's the relation between religion, ideology, worldview, and all those things together? So those, that's great. And those literally map out. You could do a whole class in the study of religion where you do, you know, the first segment is going to be religion. The next is worldview. And the finally is ideology and a kind of ascendant level of critique and external view. So what I want to try to get at as I write and think about religion is to say each one of those is a part of the conversation about religion. There are those people who do want to think about what are the, the things you need to see anthropologically in order to decide that is a religion? 
And there are those others who want to talk about, especially in the social sciences, who are interested in religion, especially as it informs how people decide to do things politically or economically. It's a worldview that can impact you and impact your decision making. Uh, but third, there's no question there's a large group of, uh, of thinkers, both philosophical, critical, um, and, and people who occupy uh, the, a broad range of locations in the modern university who say, you know, religion is just a synonym for ideology. And insofar as it is that, it's just a way of talking about how we are cajoled as collectives into agreeing to a discourse regime we did not invent, but was invented to organize us into a form of power relation. So those are three very different ways of understanding human subjects and their freedom. And what I am interested in, again, is how People who are not in the academy play with that word in all kinds of ways. So if you put religion and consuming, you know, into any uh, Google or into Twitter or any kind of um, uh, social media or internet mechanism, you will see people talk about it in ways that reflect all three of those. And I, I want to talk about how religion is a way of talking about control and freedom in social life. And so at the end of the day, we could make a decision as a scholar. This is what we're always going to look at. We're talking about religion, but you know, gosh, golly, you're going to see a lot of people in the world trying to own that word in a different way. And as scholars, I think we have to think about what it means that a word we try to control others use as sites of liberation. Others see it as a, a way of organizing themselves into powers they choose. Okay. So worldview, ideology, religion, these are all kind of tied together. And it seems like, Everybody's got to have one. And you mm-hmm. cannot get up in the morning and know what you're going to do and make decisions if you don't have some sense of what you believe about how the world is and how it operates. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you- a- <laughs> holy. I mean, how, how do you move through your day? And I think that's one of the things I want to a- I ask every student that comes to my office hours. I have some question to get at. What's the engine that organizes your day? What are, what are the set of decisions? Do you think it's the Yale College curriculum handbook? Do you think it's a sense of capitalist ambition? Is it a pursuit of a kind of more poetic life? Is it all three? And if so, how do you prioritize among the three? And one of the ways I want to get at is what's the way, what are the things you do most often in a day? And how conscious are you of those? How much do you think those are acts of selection? So yes, in the way that I, I, I'm working on and thinking through the category of religion, there is a sense in which no one will be outside of its terming. That is, you know, I have encountered in many ways this project was the result of coming to Yale and encountering so many colleague faculty who see religion in a very um, primitive way. And I kind of thought in my previous scholarly wanderings that 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 would be you never encounter that again, that this sort of sense that religion was of the unenlightened was an attitude that we kind of all abandoned in the late 1980s. And then I came to Yale and I encountered many colleagues who, uh, who, when they discovered I was in the Department of Religious Studies, were actually shocked and posed questions that suggested not merely the typical thing, oh, you must be religious, but actually, are you poisoned by a bad idea? How can we check to make sure your mind is quite secular enough? Yeah, it's like so people, I'm really yeah. interested. It's like when people say, I, I'm not religious, I always think, you are, uh, or you don't believe, I have no belief. Okay, what is it that you don't believe in? It's kind of a, yes. a, way, a way to get to the fact that they actually do believe in something, even if it's the opposite of what they think religion is. But anyway, I wanted to ask you, so saying that, do you believe that, uh, are you saying that there is a essential, I hate that word, but I have to use it, religious impulse that people have in their DNA, we all have some sort of religious impulse, and we're going to create these places where religion is going to emerge. Can we ever get away from that? Yeah, uh, that is not an area of scholarship I find especially alluring or thinking, but I, I, I continue to read it because it seems to me wrong to imagine that the work of the natural sciences and evolutionary biologists doesn't have something interesting to say. And indeed, I was just speaking with a student this morning who uh, is in our ecology and evolutionary biology department, and he was describing to me about how his project is to look at species like monkey seals that never exceed a certain size population that's quite small. And I started to think about new religious movements that stayed sex that continue to stay around but never really supersede a certain small percentage number and we had a very exciting conversation I briefly thought gosh maybe I should be doing more of what Bella et al are doing and thinking about the evolutionary nature of, of, of religious formation and growth I admit at the end of the day I, I am too much of a, a post-structuralist to to be allured by those arguments because I always think well that impulse has always been defined by a human eye that is we don't know how to talk about anything in whether it's the gene or the self without looking at ourselves as humans. There's no 
uh, abstract science is not the product of our work. So for me, the question isn't, um, is it inherently human to pursue something called religion? I'm asking the question, what is, uh, what are the patterns of our social formation that we seem to repeatedly do? But it is worth noting we have not done them always the same way over time. That, that I do think human beings have altered what it is to be socialized. And I think that's changed in the last many millennia. And uh, one of the key features that I'm really interested in is how uh, media technologies that allow us to not have to be physically nearby people in order to experience the sense of collective has really shifted our sense of social consciousness. And I'm wondering about that. It's related to that is that it seems like human beings are kind of always looking for a way to transcend their particular place and where they are. Okay. And what you're talking about, uh, the web and social media, it's kind of a, a form of transcendence. I can, you know, I can have relationships beyond the people who are in the room with me. I can transcend my own locality and my own identity even. I can make up an identity. I can be whoever I want online. So what is – you don't use the word transcendence in your book at all, but there are many moments in your book that I'm going, oh, this is people attempting to transcend something. Yeah, you know, it's that um, most of the documentary material that allures me doesn't tend to actually use okay. that word, mm-hmm. um, but it doesn't mean that I, I'm not I'm not engaged by the fact that there's a world of spirituality and spiritual expression for which that word is centrally interesting and important. And my colleague Courtney Bender has written incredible work thinking about those community um, uh, God's Love We Deliver, her ethnography, uh, and also her uh, book The New Metaphysicals, both of which do extraordinary work of thinking about how people who think a lot about transcendence i am i am kind of you know i'm I'm interested in more brute figures and whether that's uh corporations that produce commodities or uh celebrities who are interested in their own um kind of iconic reproduction i I tend to be drawn to figures who actually seem on the outside to be anti-transcendental ruthlessly materialistic and then to discover what are the forms of inspiration that motivate them and so the probably the two closest things in the book that that speak to that are uh the work that i did um on, um, on the on office cubicle where the originator of the office cubicle, this guy Robert Prost, absolutely hoped to create a transcendent experience through the process of occupying a different kind of material reality in the office. That he didn't achieve that, that the materiality of a cubicle did not lead that way is one of the things I find kind of stunningly interesting but also typical in the history of religions. And then the other thing, there's no question that I think um, – question of, of being able to be mutable in your physical form and female mutability and the hopes that by developing online relations, we can have access to different kinds of physical fantasies. That's very rooted also in the book and in the ways in which I think gendered experience in the 21st century is defined by an experience of, of, of social media and its de- definition of our beauty. One thing that you didn't really talk about in your book that is kind of was odd was you didn't talk about maybe like a political movement like Occupy a few years ago, whether, you know, how has Occupy become a, re- a religious expression? Is that, to me, that's a, to me is a form of transcendence. You join a group of other people in a common cause and you feel like you're connected to something bigger than yourself. Not transcendence in terms of like some kind of divine being up here, but Transcendence is that you feel like you're more connected to other people. Uh, so you didn't choose to to address any, you know, Black Lives Matter or anything like that. Yes. No, and I appreciate the question coming from you and, and the thoughtful work you've done on the relationship between, um, you know, theology, political possibility. And I want to say that the the book had very strong political motivations. Uh, I think if you read especially the chapter on the Kardashians, that I, I there, there's a strong subtext of what politics I want to propose. But I, I am pursuing also uh, objects that I think suppose their way in the world neutrally, but will have political consequences. So... For example, in the, uh, the 10th chapter, and uh, both in the 9th and 10th chapter, I talk a lot about being workaholic, the occupation of the contemporary workplace. And I am a person who has been very compelled by the writing of Kathy Weeks on an anti-work politics where she's pretty clear that being a workaholic, which I definitely consign myself to being, limits your political activity or rather defines your political activity. So that's something I've given a lot of, and one of the reasons I talk about the workplace as an occupying force in late modernity is, is it safe to say that we all, given that it defines so much of our life, do we actually want to say our work is our politics? If we don't, why are we working so much? What does that say about how we understand our economic reality, our economic freedom, and do we think we really need to shift the tone and term of our organizational day? Okay. Now, um, 
you talk about corporate uh, corporate structure, celebrity, the consumer culture. How do these particular segments of what you talk about separate the sacred from the profane? And one of them that I can see that really comes up in the, the purity balls, obviously. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the purity balls? Because a lot of people would just think those are just, of course, they're just religious. But yeah, you, but you grab them a little bit different. You see them a little bit different. It's yeah, for listeners who don't know, purity balls are effectively a ritual operation that's very recent in human history. They only have about a 12-year history where um, evangelical fathers take their daughters and, and betroth themselves to their daughters as gardens of their purity. And so they ball, the daughters uh, do a dance, a synchronized dance. Uh, it's a ritual event where the fathers put rings on the daughter's finger again to protect. And this is, you know, part of a broader chastity movement, which there have been excellent Moscow monographs on true love weight and the culture of chastity in uh, 1990s and, and aughts and the ways in which evangelicalism has turned to chastity. Um, and so for me, I, I was interested in, in purity balls as a way of talking about ritual invention and the creating of a consumer culture where you could buy into a tradition. And what I, especially given that the way that a lot of scholars reflect on evangelicalism as one of the idioms of American life, but evangelicalism is precisely a refusal of tradition, a renunciation of the church. I'm putting the church quotations. And so what does it mean then to develop um, a story about accountability to the Bible and watching this community develop this tradition that becomes inherent, how you enter it and join it. And one of the clear claims when you read their literature is there is a very dangerous world out there. We have to create sacred spaces to honor the sacred bond between the father and the daughter. And the sense is actually that the church, the evangelical church space, is not quite enough because it doesn't possess the sense of tradition and the reiteration of a long tie to the history of Christianity. And the attempt to invent that as a compensation for both the sense of low church ecclesiastical authority and also reiterating the role of a father in an era where the father's authority seems somewhat scarcer. And so uh, the ritual that they're, go- they're going through, you also talk about that there's consumption involved. They buy things. There's, there's mm-hmm. a, you've got to buy the kit, and <laughs> it's in a hotel, and I'm sure the girls have to buy dresses, and it's all, there's a whole kind of industry around this. Right. Yeah, and what, yes, absolutely. And I link it to uh, 19th, so the chapter where I write about Peter Bowles, I link it to a 19th century kind of very odd, Relative, a blip on the American religious scene, but a significant event in the um, Anglophone world in England, especially, and that is the ritualism crisis, a moment of kind of final decision about the relationship between the Church of England and the state governance in England. And, um, and that moment gives us a lot of things in our consumer culture. Uh, Jackson Lear is a wonderful history of modernism or in a book, No Place of Grace, writes at length about the sort of anti-modernist cultures of consumption that rise up from this reburgeoning interest in the medieval church, oriental crafts, again, putting quotes around oriental, um, and other forms of primitive desire for a bourgeois culture of a of, of a medieval period in your own home. And so the white wedding dress and graduation regalia as we know it, both have their origins in this ritualist crisis and moment. That is, those are, uh, that moment of ritualism produces a desire to re-aestheticize and create a melodrama around uh, cultural events in this moment of secularization, perceived secularization by the Anglican Church. So I, I, I want to locate then, yes, the purity balls, which don't happen until the 21st century, Century, but their design of this elaborate consumer culture and obsession with whiteness, with silver and gold jewelry, and then the, cre- the creation of an aesthetically uh, kind of romantic space to this other moment of incarnating a proper sentimental traditionalism. Okay. So one thing that you, t- you, s- you say in your book are, is that consumption, basically buying a product or that this product, not that product, or a message, that we are kind of engaged in some sort of religious exercise. And a lot of people would go, what do you mean? I go out and buy toothpaste. It's just toothpaste, okay? And you're making it yeah. into this religious thing that it's not. Okay. So try to p- persuade me of why buying toothpaste or soap or something like this is going to be a religious exercise. Yeah. So what I hope to describe is why um, the tools of the study of religion are especially good to think about why we choose to do the things we do. So in the chapter where I look at the history of soap, 
um, what I point out is something that historians of, of, of health and science have known for some time, which is in the 1840s, n- people took baths less than we do now, and they did not use soap. By the 1930s, when asked, when American consumers are asked, what are the top three most important products in their home? Everyone says soap in the top three. So how does a country learn to use soap? But you know, there's, and, a, there's counter movements now that say don't use soap. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> and that, yes. And I, and I, They're I, saying I, just, I, just wash, just water and no shampoo. And so the questions I ask in this chapter is the one I would love to see an article similarly about this moment that I've embraced about diminishing the use of these toxins and the chemicals and the, and the sense of cleanliness as being a necessity. And so by looking at this late 19th, early 20th century moment where we were compelled to believe we were dirty and needed to become clean in a particular way, that is an effort that was done partially by church groups but largely by corporations that, that, as I point out, Procter & Gamble was founded by Methodist laymen. They have Washington Gladden, a very prominent social gospel minister, come and speak to their factory. So the relationship between corporations, industrial power in the late 19th century and Protestantism should not be divided. But nonetheless, what gets founded in the 1920s is a um, an agency called the Cleanliness Institute, which is funded by the glycerin manufacturers to compel people to the essential need for soap because people didn't know that you should use it. And so they had to provide scientific information and educational handbooks and children's workbooks that all incorporate. Now, we all know this. This is like washing over us. Yeah, product placement, the way in which educational lessons are always inculcating us into consumer choices. That's something that is so naturalized now in the 21st century. We forget that that was a series of strategies by companies to ritualize us into using goods, to teach us the rituals by which goods become not a pleasure or a luxury, but an absolute necessity. So what I want to point out is the thing that makes you pick whatever, you know, even if it's a casual choice at Target, that casual choice is still an imperative, but I need that product. And that need for that product I want to explore. What is what is the origin of that need pharmaceutically, biologically, socially? And how did we become so good at ritualizing the use of consumer goods? So we say that all our choices are really under duress. Mm. I yes, mean, you know, I, when people talk about freedom of choice, we choose, you know, I can choose what life I want, whatever I want, you know, buy what I want. We we that's almost like a very like it's a religious value in America. Your right to choose whatever. OK, but. How much of that choice is actually free? Well, that is certainly one of the, I think, darker undertoes to my own work, which is not not as much as you think. So the harshest thing I say to my to, to some of my secular critics who I encounter more here than anywhere else, those who say, oh, I'm the perfect secular subject. Every decision I make is economically rationalized. Every product in my home is thoughtfully locally sourced. They describe a control of their universe that they imagine to be so total, so rationalized. And to that I say, and I think the study of religion says, everyone listening is in the study of religion says, you are deluding yourself to imagine that all of that are series of choices as opposed to things things that have been set before you by very strategic organizations for your right. own betterment. And I'm putting betterment in quotation. Yeah, I was, I was, I talked to a group of women about, uh, you know, breast implants, you know, mm-hmm. and people think I want larger breasts and that's just my choice because I just want to look beautiful and I want to look a certain way. And they think it's a free, their free choice to do this. I'm going, no, you, you society and advertisers and everybody's been telling you what is the ideal woman's body. And so how, that's it. That's it. And, and, you know, everyone, anyone who's ever been around a kid between age, let's say, 8 and 14 has been with them when they say something to the effect of, I have to have X, Adidas sneakers, some, you know, Kylie's lip liner, X or, you know, iPod, you know, that they, that they all of a sudden seem it's imperative. And the desire for the object, the parents or the, the adult figures around know, it's not because they need the object. It's that they need the social relation that the object produces for them. Right. It's almost like uh, religion, as you're speaking about it, is almost like a desire machine. Yes. Okay? Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That is it. Okay. That is it. And, and, yes. and, and, and do we actually think that we are in charge of calibrating and engineering our desire machine? Right. Okay. Now, um, we've talked about how it controls us, and we've got a, lots of examples of that, but how... How does religion, as you define it, also free us? Where is freedom? Yeah, is it that's a, freedom? a really beautiful question. Is it the freedom not to be an isolated person, alone? 
you know, the freedom of connecting, of being able to be part of something, because you can't be free alone. Yeah, I think the thing that I would say from this book, Lillian, and I hope in future years I write books that don't take me to this grim place, but I think (laughs) there's no question that working on this book and the context in which I worked on it made me very nervous about language of choice and freedom since I spend so much time speaking, you know, intensely with students who feel, despite the fact by all gaze of human history, they are the most privileged students filled with so much opportunity and possibility, and yet they feel trapped. So I, in this book, I witnessed two moments of, of what I would call freedom, and, and they both are moments that I think could cause various forms of upset. First is listening to Goldman Sachs employees talk about how they conceive the world and the authority and delight with which they conceive it. Um, that is the confidence that they have data, the pleasure of of imagining things being otherwise. Um, you know, there's so many conversations that I had that would include things like, well, imagine a world in which we only use coal. And then they would quickly race ahead. And this is like any great seminar classroom where you really feel free to express ideas and posit counterfactuals. But as a way of life, um, the intellectual freedom of playing around, but it, it also felt somewhat dangerous and scary to me, that is to listen to a group of people who felt so confidently the world was their chessboard. Um, the other instance of freedom that I, I was fascinated by was uh, the Concerned Students 1950, which I talk about in the Kardashian chapter. That's the uh, protest group in the University of Missouri who set up spaces. They both led um, public protests, but also set up a, a kind of tent camp in Central Campus. And there were moments of, that if you read about the history of that group and what they did, where there's a sense that their resistance of the daily schedule of the university, the way athletics are supposed to work, how a college campus should look and feel, where you feel like they're tasting something like freedom. But those are both instances in which one got cracked down and the other one might be a dangerous authority in all of our lives. Well, there's a certain amount of freedom that you feel when you are within any kind of a set club or something because you know what the rules are. You know what's expected of you. You minimize the number of decisions you have to make. And there is a certain amount of freedom in having some choices already pre-made for you. That's it. Yeah, I, I think I, I would ask the word freedom and safety. Like, so safety, is, is safety. That's right. Yeah, yes. and, and so yes. it might be worth playing out. What, what does freedom mean to us, and what does that really? What does it look like? Is freedom conceivable? But I, I, I think the word safety is what I encounter more. I just want to feel peace. I want to feel secure. Are those the same things? As, as cause I think of freedom is also a, a word I would want to ally with the word risk. Right, right. And, and that would be that's, very that's harder. And that's hard to live with that. Yes. I mean, it's yes. really hard to live with that. Sometimes yes. you go, I don't want to make all these choices. I want someone to tell me what to do and what to buy and who to be and, you know, who to, who to marry and what. Exactly. Okay. Uh. Yeah, and I think that's probably what you're seeing in your students, too. There's just so many choices. There's so many directions. And then there's not because there's also all these expectations from parents and their peers of what they are to be. Absolutely. There's so much on them. And then I want to say that that's also redounds back to the faculty because, uh, you know, another element of certainly my last many years of of, of academic life have been the role of student protests and student resistance at both the undergraduate and graduate level. And often those students turning to the faculty at a variety of American universities, not just Yale, and saying, what are you going to do about it? And the faculty saying back, well, I'm not sure I want to risk my security for your claim or critique. And they don't say that. I wish that there was that overt conversation, but I have watched time and again as universities shuttle or restructure or recircuit protest. Uh, there's an excellent new article uh, by uh, Lucia Hulsether in the Journal of American Academy of Religion where she talks about protests at Harvard Divinity School uh, in the 1960s and how those protests, radical racial protests of the hegemony of the form of Christianity being taught in that curriculum and the danger of the emerging world religions curriculum. And she points out how the faculty so brilliantly and strategically route those protests into the development of a new curriculum, which, as she points out, doesn't really answer their critique. It just provides new area coursework on diverse subjects. It's a pacifier. Exactly. And the pacification (laughs) that universities are amazing. We are so good at pacification. I'm not so sure we're great at freedom. Right. Okay. So you talk a lot about many uh, cultural phenomena that you – look at through this religious lens that you're looking at. One of them was really interesting was binge watching, which <laughs> yeah. to tell you the truth, I can't watch more than two episodes of anything because I got to digest it. 
So I yes. Don't know, so I don't know how people watch, you know, five or six in one night. I'm really go really? How do you do that? But anyway, <laughs> let's talk about binge watching. How is that a religious ritual? And what are the religious implications of that? <laughs> yeah, Lily, I just want to say that observation is such a great one. And I await the great study in binge viewing that points out whether it's a generational habit. But can, because um, I know in talking to many of my colleagues about that project, many said the same thing as you. They're like, I can't do that. I need to absorb it. I, I couldn't possibly sit for seven hours. But you ask anyone age over under the age of 28, do you binge view? I think you're going to get over 70% saying yes. And um, so what's that habit, that capacity? Um, and, and, and not only what they have a capacity, but what does it tell us about their life? So what I explore in that chapter is um, – First, the history, uh, there's several different histories I pulled together. One is the history of the Internet itself and the kind of mystical promise of connection. Um, and here my colleague Jeremy Stolo and John Lardis Modern have written a lot of interesting stuff about technology, mysticism, transit, the, the hope infusing technology, that it can be this cool way to, as you were earlier talking about, transcendence. So I talk about the history of especially the, um, the, you know, the what we think of as uh, wireless communication and how the technology comes a lot that allows us to binge watch. And then what is it that we're doing when we're binge watching? And the reason I'm interested in binging is because it's so absorbing. It's a thing that my students would reflect back often um, gave them a space away and I started noticing that some of the students who were particularly religious in a more typical mold, that is Orthodox Jews or particularly observant Muslims, also talked about the way that a religious calendar and schedule for themselves allowed them time away from the kind of uh, kind of hyper-capitalist mm-hmm. scheduling of their, their student lives. So I started thinking a lot about the relationship between extreme behavior, extreme immersive behavior, um, and other forms of immersive behavior in religious life. I think a lot about fundamentalism in that chapter and the way that scholars have debated what that word means and the, the chapter kind of climaxes for me around two images one the figure of Muhammad Atta um, going into the Twin Towers the day before having gone to Pizza Hut and Walmart what is that figure and I argue that it's not you know a religion against a non-religion but actually two religions facing off one form of extreme expressiveness that is Wall Street and its incarnation of finance capitalism and the other uh, is a certain idiom of Islam but I also think about in our more contemporary post-2001 moment there's so much anxiety around online um, relationships forged that might bring Westerners to Islam and there was that long New York Times piece where it talked about a a series of lonely hearts who get captured by these internet relationships and people talk about being online for hours and hours and being in chat rooms and the immersion and as you were talking about earlier these alternative social idiom and that those are spaces where people can in the, in the language of this New York Times article fall prey to the wrong people I'm interested in those as being alternative sites of self-formation where you can be a different kind of self as you were speaking about earlier okay um, the other one is that was really interesting is the idea of the celebrity is sort of a new uh, religion. It reminds me of the show American Idol, which totally fits this whole thing. Uh, so what are the what are the values of celebrity culture, and what does it do for us? What does it do for us to have American idols? <laughs> yeah, um, you know, for me, the celebrity is, 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 a, is a familiar and easy ground to walk on since I spent so much time thinking about Oprah Winfrey as a particular incarnation, a particular site of attention. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in celebrity because it's an instance where you can see a group of people have decided to look at a particular thing, whether it's Rihanna's Instagram or um, or tracking Kanye's movements on Twitter, that you can watch as large numbers of people consume, react, engage with that figure. And that allows us a kind of real-time uh, social history of, of human identification and engagement. Um, but, you know, in the, in the chapter, I take a, a kind of – I use celebrity as a way of talking about other patterns in human culture – chapter on Britney Spears uses Britney as a way of talking about starlet culture and, and young stars and, and situates her in the tradition of um, an amazing tradition in, in the history of religions on sacrifice and why for sacrificial rituals to work, it requires something being consumed, whether it's a food or a person that is that you're giving something to the gods ostensibly or some higher power and and I, I, I think about why are young female stars a key source material for our culture's survival, whether it's 
uh, Britney Spears or Demi Lovato or Taylor Swift. Who are these women to us? What are their bodies? Uh, and, and what does it mean that we need them to be eaten up and to get old and to go away? And staying, it's the hardest thing of all, is staying in the attention span of the American public past the young age of desirable sacrifice. This reminded me, and you don't talk about this, but uh, reminded me of Donald Trump and he, his use of Twitter and his, his background, you know, with reality TV. It's almost like he is allowing himself to be consumed, to be that uh, object. What do you think is going on there? I mean, that, that whole him and his followers and people, and his attempt at Twitter and, you know, his all that. Can you tell Can you say anything about that? Because I know you didn't talk about it, but... It just seems so appropriate. Yeah. No, I, I talk about it a tiny bit when I talk about the Kardashians because I, I am interested in reality TV as a space, that America, a, a genre that Americans have latched so deeply onto. And I think Donald Trump you know, teaches us many things. There's so much great punditry about Donald Trump. But I think students of religion know that for something um, to be interesting to people, it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, intellectually justifiable or rational. And so a lot of the critical response to Trump was trying to fact check him or show how he's inconsistent. And we scholars of religion should know and be, and be teachers on the question of something doesn't have to be uh, full of facts as we understand verifiable facts in order to be something that people want to pay a lot of attention to and get excited about. And the other thing that, that, that consuming pop culture teaches you, too, is that hate is actually a key element to success. That, and that's what, for me, unites the examples of the office cubicle, the Kardashians, and Goldman Sachs, which is we are mistaken if we think that we win by being liked. In part, we win because people keep paying attention to us as much through our hate as through our desire for them, that our desire is in part knit up into, I want to see what Kim does tonight. Like it's as much watching failure. And so I think our attentions to Trump are like reality TV attentions drawn to his mistakes a lot more than we think they are to him being this rectifying leader. It's like he becomes a religious figure because he's so bad. <laughs> exactly. You know, but I mean, you know, instead of being a saint, he's really bad, so he's like all sinners. And he's like it, also, yeah, I would say he's a very specific kind of sinner, which is the man bumbling in the 21st century to deal with this new political economy. So, you know, what there, I think there's obviously a lot of different kind of, of white men in America, but we know that there's a lot of people who relate to feeling incapacitated and ill at ease with the new political correctness, with the sense of, you know, ascendant gender parity, um, of this new climate of, of, of racial diversity and, and empowerment. And, and Trump is just that guy who never figured it out. And we get to watch him continue to not figure out that we live in a new culture. But at the same time, he's reminding us we haven't really gotten there yet. We haven't really tra- changed the structures of power. Okay, so you talk about parenting, um, the obsession uh, with parenting <laughs> that is almost really doomed to failure because there's just no way anybody can meet these expectations. Anybody who's ever been a parent understands this. And then you also talk about the Kardashians being a f- the, the whole emphasis of them being a family. Okay, mm-hmm. the, this almost worship of the family. And uh, can you talk about t- that whole that whole scene there? <laughs> yeah, you know, there's no, there's no question. I was drawn into the subject. Indeed, my chapter on the Kardashians is dedicated to my my stepdaughter, who, um, you know, she entered my life when when she was six, and she's now 16. And and uh, one of the ways that we connected was by consuming the Kardashians together. You know, her mother was really found the Kardashians abhorrent and awful. And and one of the things that bonded us together was how much she loved the Kardashians. And I thought, okay, I, c- I can love almost anything in popular culture. And and I became interested, frankly, in her interest because the Kardashians. There's nothing like our family on the Kardashians, and yet what, what, what might she be attracted to about it? And I think um, it's hard. If you watch a lot of the Kardashians, you discover that the return of the family is always to one another. There is nothing you can do in this family, nothing you can say to each other that won't bring you back into the brand. And the cynic says, of course not, because they make money off of staying together. Uh, but what you watch in the show are all of the strategies by which they re-ritualize their family formation. 
And I'm interested in particularly because they've commodified that reforming a family. And for women who are often, again, Kathy Weeks, do a lot of unpaid labor and, and remake it. Chris Jenner has found a way to make a whole ton of money off of being a mother. And I think there's a lot of mothers in America who say, I do this for free. I do it for, you know, like that, I want to do it for free. But wow, if we priced this product, it'd be worth a lot in our society. Chris Jenner's found a way to price the product of being a parent. And meanwhile, alongside this ascendant Kardashians, which I think a lot of people view them and see the parenting as poor or stand in judgment, we also have this um, kind of hyperactive ecology of elite parenting where there's treating every child as a kind of microscopic experiment in social success and um, and all of the habitus of that, pharmaceutical and cognitive behavioral and, and the ways in which we train the right children and, gosh, you know, keep the hormones away from them. Anyway, the strategies of management. And to me, I'm interested in the way that, that forms a kind of sectarianism too. Okay, well, uh, it's pretty poisonous, I think. You're seeing you're seeing the product of the of this elite yeah. parenting in your classroom. I would think. You know, I am. I am. I, I appreciate you saying the word poisonous. That I, I'm the person who gathers that people call it poisonous, because you know, I see both. You know, I see the children, the, the children who become adults who come to my office and can meta narrate their identity, their formation, the qualities of biological, epicurean, kinesiological, and every feature of their linguistic acumen has been thought about obsessively by someone. And on the one hand, yes, I. I think there's something that you can't help but wonder what other kinds of child are achievable at the same time. Wow, these are pretty phenomenal kids. And so the question is that is they, they come here ready and, and prepared for a certain kind of engagement that, that is radically different than the one that I think we saw a generation ago. I don't think we know yet if this is going to be good or bad for society. I just know it it's feels changed. like they peaked really early. Well, that's the question, and certainly I want you to know. They worry about that. You know, the number of students who I say mean, I've, I've already, I've already done everything. I've been all over the world. By the time I was eighteen, my parents, I can speak three languages. You know, you wonder what's to come, right? Yes, I, yes. I was, I was yes. slow in my development, so. <laughs> So, so I hope political revolution. Of course, that's my hope for them. But you know that that, that right. That many of them say, like, is the greatest day of my life the day I got into a certain college. And I think we have to ask ourselves, who made that a part of the teleology of late modern parenting? Who decided that college education? Well, certainly, college educators should not act like innocent parties in that. That you know, we all benefit those of us who are complicit with these institutions, private or public, with the U.S. News and World Report of the world, like the increase in our tuition dollars. Now, there are huge consequences to that, to the labor economy of higher education. I don't think we've really dealt with what has happened in higher education, how radically it's changed from, you know, admissions that happened before 2000 to after. We've changed the economy, and now we have students who serve that economy because we made a market, and it worked. Okay. Now, there's a another thing you talk about. We're going to change gears here. You talk about the anthropological category of culture that has been applied to corporations. Now we talk about corporate culture or institutional culture. So, and you you apply that to your analysis of Goldman Sachs, and you reveal some very important religiously recognizable values and practices. And it was all it was kind of weird. It was kind of like a cult. But you talk about that. It is a cult. Okay. Well, you know what I mean. So can, mm-hmm. can you talk about uh, the whole category of corporate culture? And it was so eerily real to me because I've seen so much of it in my life. So, <laughs> Well, I appreciate that. You know, it's partially when you're doing this kind of um, cultural criticism and, and uh, kind of emergent ethnography, you hope, am I, what am I seeing here? Is this reflected in, in people's experience? And I think of all the objects I've ever studied, corporations are the most eager to say, yep, we're a religion. Yep, we're a cult. What's wrong with that? And, and that complicity between the desire to create a culture and how that culture and its success has direct bearing on your productive success as a corporation really, you know, alights my own mind. And so on um, one chapter, I do look at the history of the category of corporate culture itself and, and look especially at the management gurus and social scientists who came up with that category in the late 50s. And I, and I connect the emergence of that category with the writings of Clifford Geertz and also with the way that in so many of those early writings on corporate culture, they used religion as a 
positive example. Look at religion X or Y, usually Catholicism and, and large-scale church cultures, to see how they're good at keeping groups of people doing the same thing for millennia. we got to figure out how to do that. And so when I get to, uh, when I encounter Goldman Sachs, I encounter it through former students of mine and then later alumni of the university and, and, and donors to Yale who can come to me with examples and connections about how the mentoring structure, the locution for a mentor at Goldman is a rabbi, uh, the way in which uh, Goldman becomes the thing that supersedes all other social features of your life, um, how the culture creates a sense of internal critique and mutual critique so that the people who survive are those who are willing to engage in perpetual self-scrutiny and scrutiny of others, um, and their own relationship to the broader world where they understand themselves, um, whether or not they have a, a theology or a, a theism, they have a sense that they are doing God's work on earth. They are solving the problems of the world. They are cosmo, they have cosmological capacity to see how the world and all of its parts come together and to do that bit by bit by tiny structures and yeah. acts of deal making. It reminds me of the Oneida uh, group in uh, the 19th century. The Absolutely. Oneida community. Okay. Yes. Uh, now, let me ask you a question. If these, if these corporations have these, uh, religious, uh, sensibilities, I guess it's what kind of sensibilities. What happens to people who are like, let's see, a Muslim who has a real, uh, who has very deep uh, traditional religious commitments? Do they have a, a difficult time fitting in into these structures because there's value conflicts? Mm, that's a great question, and I think there's there's two ways to look at that. One is um, often when you talk to parents who are trying to raise their children religiously, and I talk about this a little bit in my chapter on parenting, what they often say the hardest thing to fight against is not other religions, but consumer culture. So one of my motivating idioms is to think about how is consumer culture itself form, and here again that image of Muhammad Atta, a counter space of religious contestation and meaning. But I think, too, um, in, the, in the case of being an actual religious subject, whatever that is, as somebody who can identify themselves enough to submit themselves for a legal claim, to turn to my uh, colleague Winnie Sullivan's work, you see how corporations are trying to be incredibly strategic around including such workers. Goldman, to go back to that example, for, recently gave dispensation to Orthodox Jews to take off on Saturdays, something that they had not done for many years of their own secularization because they did begin as a Jewish family firm in the late 19th century. And so for many, many years, everyone who participates in Goldman perhaps like other broader secular institutions, denies religious identity. But around the 1990s, this insurgent desire to claim religious identity and to try to ask for a different work day because of that identity. And finally, Goldman says yes, realizing in one of their statements that you actually get more productivity out of workers if you recognize their religions. So that itself is a piece of data to me, the way in which they see religion as itself a form of cohering authority, that if they give authority to, they will have more authority. Okay, so... I want to talk to you about uh, the whole movement, the current obsession with wellness, yoga, uh, you know, all this uh, people who spend hours in the gym uh, who are trying to, you know, really committed to health, which is kind of counterculture to uh, large portions of the culture that are don't eat well, don't take care of themselves, you know, don't get any exercise. Can you talk about, I mean, I see, I see this wellness culture as, Pretty much, there is a big religious element in it. Absolutely. Uh, there's a doctoral student here, a wonderful doctoral student, Cody Musselman, who's working on exactly that on Soul Cycle and all of these new hardcore fitness regimes and both the guru culture within them, but also the sense of extremity right. and how you can take your body to extremes. And the things she's looking at is how you can commodify experience. I want that experience. I want that raw edge. And so her work will help teach me more about what's the form of, because I don't think a lot about embodiment in my writing. I tend to think more about text and, and social organizational structure. But I think there's a lot to be said for what kind of bionic bodies do we want and seek to have? How does uh, this form of um, all of the ways we talk about food culture now, pharmaceutical culture, slow and physical food, health? Slow food. Slow food. Mm. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, let me ask you about uh, if you look at what you write, it seems like religion is pretty much everywhere. Mm. But, that is, yeah. But mm-hmm. is religion everything? Ha, ha, ha. 
No, and I, I no, it, it is not. And indeed, I think um, I, I and I think there will be great critiques that that mount this about my book. I I really mean to raise the word religion as much as a pugnacious action as anything. I'm trying to say, if you don't want a religion, then start making decisions about what you're being organized into. And if you don't have the ability to make those decisions, then let's start talking about the structures that keep you from feeling like you do have those capacities. So it is. I'm, I mean to do it to ignite a conversation, not to lead everyone to become a five to get more 501c3 status for celebrities. I'm seeking instead to say, what are we committed to? What are we say now about the nature of our socialization and do we like it? Well, the whole thing is how do we challenge this? I mean, what is, yes. what does solidarity look like? How, what does resistance look like when you're dealing with consumer culture that is so overwhelming that is where you've got media that's surrounding you all the time, uh, yes. everywhere you go? What does resistance look like? I think resistance looks like feeling uncomfortable even when we wish to relax. So one of the things I hear so often from students is the desire not to, that their lives, their daily lives are so hard that in their off hours, they're free from work and self-professionalization hours. They just want to go blank. And I want to ask them and others, that desire for blankness is also related to the hyperactivity of their days. If we diminished their days from that sense of intensity and that every single moment must be instrumentalized, might their time seem less, as I would say, schizophrenic, bent between what I think a lot of people see as a kind of junk food economy and a hyper-actualized capitalist economy? Is there a space in between where you resist how we want to instrumentalize our working day and create more time for other kinds of encounter and conflict? Because you know most people don't have a lot of control over their work day. They do not. They they're do being, not. They're being pushed uh, to, the, to the max of what they're to, to produce. Yes. That is right, and I think we have to ask ourselves. That's a political, um, that's a political move. I mean, that is, yes. that's a way to keep people disengaged. You, they, you, can't have, you don't have any energy for political involvement because you're just worn out. Amen, Lillian. Yes, and I think we have to ask, what are we willing to sacrifice as a society so that we are not so contained? Okay, so uh, Benjamin Rolski, I think, his name, he just did a review of your, of your book. Mm-hmm. And there's some questions in his review that I wanted to ask you. Great, uh, yes. Well, how does our moment call for your work in, in the way other moments have not called for your work? Mm-hmm. I think um, the, if I had to be a historian of our moment that would differentiate it, I would ask the question, what is Google Calendar and what is a calendar and how do we map our day and our time? And the mapping of time and increments in a way that I think any historian worth their salt that they studied the last 120 years would observe something has happened to the way we organize ourselves in time in the modern West that is quite different than before. How does that, what we were just speaking about, that sense that in order to survive, to merely survive, we have to instrumentalize every moment of our waking life. How else could we organize well, they, life? Yeah, they have, they, yes. have, they have seminars on this. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You know, you can go to a seminar and how to use your time. And my, my theory is I'm not going to the seminar because that's a waste of time. Exactly. <laughs> if I have to go to a seminar for it, I'm obviously in trouble. Exactly. Okay, so what, do you, what are you advocating in terms of structural building? I mean, we've got structures that are so uh, solidified that it's very it, – it's. I don't know how you build solidarity with these structures, particularly when the American way is the way of the individual, okay, self-fashioning, and we believe that it, it, what's, what's bad that's happening to us is because it's our fault, and if we're going to get anything good, we have to do it. And so that really keeps us from joining with other people because we're so individualistic. It's so ingrained. That's the, I think that that's a bigger problem, and consumer culture feeds that individualist uh, thing, you know, be all you can be and be as beautiful as you can be. And Absolutely. There's, there's not many messages that we get that say, Join your friends in, in this particular thing. I, I think that's exactly right. And I think um, the question of resistance here, we see already being modeled by the various forms of public resistance. And we see them in, I would say, the two strong acts of political resistance of the last two years. The election of Donald Trump, Black Lives Matter. 
Occupy Wall Street, the resistance to health care, or what we call Obamacare, nationalized health care. So we see a dichotomy emerging of those. I see both those critiques coming from the same place of consumer and, uh, and individualist pain. So wherever your politics lie, you may agree with Donald Trump and not want national health care. I believe that, that that decision to be against it is from the same source of pain and individualization mm. that I hope I'm mm. seeking to diagnose here, as are those who are allies to Black Lives Matter or to Occupy Wall Street. So those are two different p- parts of the political spectrum, but I think they are united by a consumer culture that, Im- that, that, that mirrors their imprisonment. Right, and I know what you're what you're what you're asking, what you're doing is you're diagnosing the problem. You don't necessarily have any concrete answers, I, the which is fine. Which is fine. Hey, hey, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I we can't do everything. But, Somebody else is going to have to come up with the answer. But I, but think, I do, yeah, I do think the question of being able to encounter each other and witness the conflicts that actually are, are are underlying our current existence is the number one RX most humanists are going to give you. Okay, well. Thank you very much, Catherine. You have been very generous with your time. It's been a great conversation. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. This is a special edition from the Society of U.S. Intellectual History. This is your host, Lillian Barger.